Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL. New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. We'll bring you the facts and some timely commentary from policymakers, experts, and grassroots leaders from across the country. This week, we'll get some first impressions of President Biden's much-awaited fiscal year 2022 federal budget. My first guest is Mark Goldwine, Senior Vice President and Senior Policy Director at the Committee for a, a Responsible Federal Budget. Then I'll be joined by Steve Robinson, Chief Economist of the Concord Coalition. Well, President Biden has been rolling out a series of major policy proposals since taking office, but last week was the first time we get to see them all put together in one place when he unveiled his fiscal year 2022 budget, which covers the years 2022 through 2031. The budget projects annual deficits in excess of a trillion dollars for each of those years and increases the debt as a share of the economy from 110% this year, which would be an all-time record, uh, to 117% in 2031. In total, for the coming 10 years, the Biden budget would increase spending by $5 trillion and increase revenue by $3.6 trillion, meaning that the total deficits would go up by about $1.4 trillion. That's assuming a, a baseline. Uh, that is, if you did nothing, what would you have in deficits? It would add up to $13.1 trillion over 10 years. And under the Biden proposals, it would add up to 14.5 trillion over 10 years. So it's an increase. This is actually the first presidential budget since fiscal year 2009 that does not uh, seek to reduce total deficits or lower the debt to GDP ratio from those 10 year baseline projections. So it's a milestone in, in fiscal policy uh, in that it, it uh, does not seek to reduce the deficit, but it would actually increase it over the next 10 years. However, uh, the administration has made note that its policies would, would begin to reduce the deficit uh, toward the end of the coming 10 years and would reduce projected deficits by more than $2 trillion in the second decade. In other words, from 2032 to 2041. So basically they're saying, this is a big investment. We're gonna spend a lot of money up front. Uh, and we're assuming that over the long term, the deficit, this will have a positive effect on the deficit. So that's a big, uh, that's a, those assumptions are something that are gonna be at the root of the debate about whether the budget is fiscally responsible or not, and whether or not these are investments that will pay off over time and how they're paid for. Uh, certainly uh, this is a big, um, this is, this certainly, this is a budget of big ideas. And so unlike some people, I don't think that the budget is 
uh, debt on arrival, it's likely to be a very impactful budget because the House and the Senate are both in control of the Democrats. And there's a, an atmosphere of Washington of wanting to, quote unquote, go, go big. So whether or not the budget adds up exactly as the president says, or any of it gets passed, you know, there's a lot of that is, is yet to be seen. But I do think it's, uh, it's going to be a very influential budget, uh, just in terms of direction anyway. We'll look into the policy details, and we'll look at some of the assumptions with our two guests, and we'll start with Mark Goldwine. Mark guides and conducts research on a wide variety of topics related to fiscal policy uh, at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Uh, he's a frequent guest on the media programs Beyond Facing the Future, and he works with members of Congress and their staff on budget-related issues, and he has some very uh, relevant experience in 2010 Mark served as Associate Director of the National Commission on Fiscal Responsibility and Reform. That was, that's a mouthful, and it was called the Fiscal Commission, it was known as. And in 2011, he was a Senior Budget Analyst on the Joint Select Committee on Deficit Reduction, which was known as the Super Committee. In addition to his work at the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget, Mark teaches economics at the University of California, D.C., and at Johns Hopkins University. Mark was featured in the Forbes 30 Under 30 list for law and policy. That was in 2011. Mark, welcome back to Facing the Future. Glad to be here. Good morning. Well, good morning. And uh, I'm, I, I should note that uh, you're taking time out of your vacation this week to do this uh, podcast, so I very much appreciate that. You know, before the budget was released, the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget put out a list of things that I wanted to see in the budget. So I thought we could use that as a framework for jumping into the analysis. Um, one of the things that uh, you said you'd be looking for is a framework to address rising debt levels. Uh, what do you think? Well, the budget does, over the very long term, start to reduce debt relative to its projection, um, but debt remains on a pretty strong upward path. Uh, at the end of last year, debt was about the size of the economy, so 100% of GDP. Under the budget, it's going to rise to 117% um, by the end of the decade, and it's going to keep rising after that. Um, there is no plan in this budget to turn around the debt trajectory, so it's going in the right direction. And uh, the second thing that, uh, and, and I want to get back to that 20-year thing at some, at some point, but the second thing that, uh, that was on the list was offsets for new initiatives and spending increases. Yeah, so here, here the administration, I think, gets a lot more credit, maybe not uh, full credit, because traditionally, we pay for things over 10 years. The administration's budget is fully paid for over, I think, 16 or 17 years, with its core initiatives paid for over 14 years. Their argument, which I think has some weight to it, is a lot of their spending is on investments. And those investments actually pay out you know, over, over time and have returns go well beyond their spending. And so their argument is, we offset the spending over you know, its useful life actually faster than that. And so we get some deficit reduction in the long term. I worry about the slippery slope here. 10 years becomes 15 years, becomes 17 years, becomes 40 years. You know, it doesn't do us much good to pay for something 150 years in the future. 
So this isn't the way that I would do it, but I take a lot of credit for sticking to that principle that you got to pay for stuff and for having a lot, actually a lot of specific pay fors in this, in this budget from very large things to very small things, mostly on the revenue side, mostly tax increases. And I want to get back to that concept too, because it's, it's kind of interesting about how, how this budget is framed in terms of investment and infrastructure and, you know, whether that, that makes sense over a, a longer period of time trying to offset things if you're offsetting investments. Uh, but it makes less sense if you're, if you're not offsetting new programs that wouldn't be considered investments. So um, I want to get back to that uh, too, as to, you know, what, what qualifies. Uh, so the third thing on the list was, do they have plans for expiring provisions? For the most part, they don't. So um, a little surprising, but maybe not so surprising. This budget didn't end up including every single policy agenda that, that the president wanted. It really is focused in almost entirely on the two plans he's released already, the American Jobs Plan and the American Families Plan, plus their discretionary budget. Um, now, that's concerning in the sense that um, there's a lot of pressures on the budget not included in, included in this. Um, they, their own child tax credit extension only goes through 2025, but so does a huge number of tax cuts that were passed under under um, the Trump administration. Um, and there's a lot of other these expirations. If we just extended everything as is, um, it would dramatically worsen an already bad debt situation. Yeah, those uh, expiring provisions are all, always make it difficult to uh, adjud adjudicate the uh, true cost of a budget. Okay. Uh, the, right. fourth, Look, the plan yeah. doesn't have to be the plan doesn't have to be to extend them all. The plan could be to let some of them expire or to phase them out or to reform them. The problem is they're not explicit about this. They, they assume their aspiration because that's in the law, but they don't appear to have any specific intent to, to let or make them expire. And the, uh, the fourth thing on the list, uh, would, would they have reasonable economic and policy assumptions? So this one, I think the administration does well. Um, I, I worry a few of their offsets are not going to save as much as they think that they're going to save. But um, when you go back to the Trump budgets, it was a lot of make-believe and, fa and, and fairy dust. They were projecting 3% annual growth in the Trump budgets when most people thought you'd be lucky to get 2%. The Biden budget is much more down to earth. Um, they think that we will get growth at almost 2% a year, which is a bit faster than what CBO thinks. CBO thinks 1.6 to 1.7. They think 1.9 um, or so. The difference can be explained mostly because the administration thinks that their agenda is pro-growth. This is not, a, it's not, these aren't conservative growth assumptions. They are definitely more optimistic than independent forecasters, but they're more optimistic by the amounts that we would expect that we've seen in past budgets. And so overall, I would say these are pretty reasonable assumptions. They don't appear to be relying on a lot of gimmicks um, in order to make their numbers appear to add up when, um, you know, when they don't, which is what we saw again with the last administration. Uh, and when we think about uh, presidential budgets and economic assumptions, the thing that distinguishes presidential budgets from, say, a CBO forecast is that the president's budget always assumes a, an economic effect from the president's policies. Um, was there anything to indicate uh, how much of a uh, kick, how much of a boost economic feedback they, they think they would get from, the, uh, from their policies? 
So I haven't, it, it's possible somewhere dug in the appendix, there is something, but I, but I, I haven't found a part that separates out how much of this is that they think there's going to be faster underlying growth in CBO and how much is from their policies themselves. But we're talking about a 25 basis point difference, you know, 0.2 to 0.3 difference. I would assume a lot of that is the result of their policies, um, which to be frank is on the optimistic side, um, but, but not crazy. I think very clearly policies that um, invest in productive infrastructure, um, you know, get rid of lead pipes, expand broadband, um, um, offer child care and early um, education so people can go to work. These kinds of policies are going to help grow the economy. I think there's no question about that. The flip side is the financing is probably on, on net going to shrink the economy. Um, some of it's deficit financed for a while. That's bad for, for growth. Some of it's financed with higher corporate rates, higher rates on capital gains and individual income. Um, these things, you know, on net are probably bad for economic growth. That doesn't mean they're bad policies. So um, it's not that it's going to be a wash, but you'd expect things going in both directions. And the administration clearly believes that the spending, the positive spending is going to be the overwhelming effect. Um, but other forecasters like Penn Wharton budget model have actually found that, um, you know, on net, it would be a tiny reduction in growth from their plan overall. So I think it's it's kind of ambiguous as to what their plan will actually do. But they're clearly assuming uh, some extra growth from it, at least. It would be interesting to see if whatever model they were using downplayed more than in the past, standard models do the effect of rising debt. Um, because models are different. Some of them have a you know yeah. different a, a growth effect uh, effect on growth. Well, and, go ahead. Yeah. I'll say that it's plausible their interest rates by the end of the decade are a bit lower than you would expect given their growth rates and given the debt rate. So that is suggestive. There's a lot of reasons that could be. But that is suggestive that they may think that the crowd out effect from debt is a bit lower um, than, say, what CBO, CBO thinks. And that might be a factor there. I, I think they also assume that some of their tax increases um, are actually in some ways going to be um, efficiency improving. Maybe not pro-growth, but not anti-growth. For example, if you have an international minimum tax and you get other countries to also do the minimum tax, um, that could sort of that could help with our competitive advantage in some ways, rather than hurting it. Um, or taxing capital gains at death. You know, we usually think of taxing capital as reducing growth, but capital gains at death is actually a huge loophole that makes all other taxation of capital inefficient. So we may be seeing places also on their revenue side where they're expecting less of a hit than you would think at first blush. And some of that is probably justified. Well, uh, of course, it'll be interesting to see sometime later this summer, um, we'll get a scoring of the president's budget from CBO. And so it'll be interesting to see what sort of a, an economic effect uh, CBO uh, anticipates if they're able to score the budget with enough specificity. That's right. And something interesting we found, if you just took the administration's um, sort of raw numbers and put them against the CBO baseline, debt would get to about the same place by the end of the decade. It would still get to about 118% instead of 117. Um, it would take a very different course to get there, but it would get to about the same place. So it may be that even if CBO has very different economic assumptions, the, the resulting fiscal implications aren't all that different. Um, my big caveat in all of that is CBO may think that some of these revenue items raise less money than the administration does, and that could that could change the picture. 
that's an intriguing point to take our first break uh, here. And we'll leave you on that suspenseful note and come back to it. Uh, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. And I'm talking with Mark Goldwine of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. We're discussing President Biden's budget proposal that was released last week. Mark and I will be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I'm talking with Mark Goldwine, Senior Vice President and Senior Policy Director at the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget. We're discussing President Biden's first budget proposal that was dropped last week uh, at 1.30 on a Friday afternoon before a holiday weekend. So take what you will from that. Um, <laughs> Not the sort of thing that's traditionally meant to uh, to, to draw a lot of attention. Um, Mark, where we left off, you we were talking about some of the tax proposals in the president's budget, which of course are crucial to offset the spending uh, and, uh, and and not uh, have the deficit go up by uh, too much, at least over the long, long term. Um, so some of the revenue proposals might not raise as much money as the administration claims in the budget. Um, one that comes to mind is the assumption that they get about $700 billion from tighter enforcement, uh, the so-called tax gap. Um, is that uh, something that, that CBO is likely to um, give them credit for or, or not? Yeah, I think I think we're thinking the same thoughts here. Um, it's pretty common that the administration's estimates of spending come in a bit lower and their estimates of revenue a bit higher than CBO and JCT. JCT and CBO just tend to be less optimistic on that kind of stuff. Um, but the one where I expect the largest difference is actually my favorite policy in the whole budget, right? I think the best way to raise taxes, the best way, the first way, is to get people to pay the taxes they already owe. And so making sure the IRS is, is appropriately funded, not only to do audits, but also to actually do taxpayer services. A lot of taxes are underpaid because people just don't know how much they owe. They are, they're having trouble calculating their taxes. Um, so fully funding the IRS, getting better information reporting, regulating paid preparers, these kinds of policies, uh, I think, are the first best way to raise revenue. And I'm strongly supportive. With that said, um, I'd be surprised if CBO and JCT, that's the Joint Committee on Taxation, um, think that this raises $700 billion in total. When they've looked at tax gap policies in the past, they've usually come in in the single digit billions or maybe in the tens of billions. Um, I do think they've never looked at something as robust as what the administration's proposing, including huge levels of funding for the IRS, um, way above anything CBO has estimated, and including um, really in some ways novel reporting. So, so I don't expect it to be in the billions or tens of billions here, but, but I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a score that was um, half a quarter, um, even less um, of what the administration says. I'm hopeful I'm wrong. I'm hopeful that, you know, the data shows we actually can get $700 billion um, from this, or even 500 billion as Penn Wharton estimated. But having seen uh, CBO scores of similar-ish things in the past, um, I, I, I get very worried that the number is going to come in well low, well below. It's just as a technical matter, would CBO even score it? I mean, they've, they've been, even if they could come up with a number, they've, they've warned that, uh, you know, since it's not a direct change in policy and it's 
kind of an improvement in administration, they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't score it in a in a budget. So so here's how it'll work. Within a budget, CBO will estimate the entire thing. They'll estimate the funding for the IRS, they'll estimate the information reporting, and they will give their best estimate. There may be things they say, well, we have no idea, but they will give their best estimate of the whole thing. When it comes to legislation, um, the part of the money that comes from funding the IRS more can't technically be scored. Um, I say can't technically be scored because if we're in a bipartisan, um, you know, if we have a bipartisan agreement, if we have 60 votes, it doesn't matter that it can't technically support be scored. CBO could just say, this is our estimate and Congress can pretend it's a score. But if they're dealing with special reconciliation rules where uh, they only, you know, they have 50 votes, um, then that score starts to really matter because it determines what they can do. And in that case, some of this wouldn't, some of this money wouldn't be available, specifically the money from funding the IRS, which I believe the administration thinks is um, in the neighborhood of 200 billion. On the, uh, to continue on the tax side, are, are there any other policies that are, um, you know, that are more traditional policies, <laughs> uh, change in, yeah. in policies rather than tougher enforcement that, uh, that you think are, are positive, negative, or unlikely to score as, as well as they think? Yeah, I mean, everything's gonna score a little bit different. Um, there are some things like raising the top rate um, and some of the things, some of the changes they're making for um, the net investment income tax that I think CBO might come in a bit lower. There are other things like the minimum tax where CBO may even come in higher because um, it's really dependent a lot on what other countries do. Um, so, you know, it's hard to tell um, on net how, how that's going to flesh out. I'm curious to see. Um, and similar in the spending thing, some of these policies like paid leave, um, um, it's not clear to me how they're getting the cost so low compared to what we see in the past. So we could see um, those those costs expand. Um, overall, there's a lot to like in the tax package. There's not everything to like, but um, you know, one of my favorite policies besides the, you know, I hate loopholes. I hate tax avoidance. I hate loopholes. And so the best thing we can do is get people to pay the taxes they already owe. The next best thing is to get people to pay the taxes they should owe. Um, under current law, we pay capital gains on assets we sell. But if we're manage to hold them our entire lives and pass them on to our kids, they need to escape that taxation forever. And the kids get to start over. So, you know, if I bought a stock for a dollar, gave it to my kids at a hundred and they sold it for 101, they're only paying capital gains on an extra $1. And so the administration's proposal to um, get rid of that step-up basis loophole, I think is just um, a, a fabulous idea, regardless of how much they tax capital gains Overall, um, there's also lots of I like to bring back super fund taxes. I think um, that's going to, you know, help make sure that people are paying for their own pollution. Something I wish we would do a little bit more in this um, American jobs package is is rely on kind of user charges and fees so that people are paying for the products they use. Um, there's a lot of good stuff on the corporate side and, um, you know, changes on taxes and higher earners. Again, you may not like every part of it, but this is a pretty robust package of revenue and it's the kind of revenue we're going to need to raise, um, you know, if we want to be paying for these big new proposals. Uh, one last thing on the tax side before we shift over to the spending side, um, because you mentioned that we're going to need the revenues is, um, what do you think about the, the president's pledge not to raise 
taxes on anybody earning below $400,000 a year. Is that a prudent pledge look, or, or not? Uh, yeah, look, this pledge is completely silly. It was silly when it was 250000 a year with Obama. It's actually even more silly when it's four hundred. not only because it's a you know, it's exempting 99% of people from, or 98 or 99% of people from the taxes, but also because it makes it harder to um, conform with things that were done in the Obama administration. Because, because we have all these taxes from the Obama era that started at 200 and 250. And if you want to improve those taxes, you now need to have a, you know, a three-tier tax system where it looks like one thing for people below 250, another thing between 250 and 400, and another thing above that. So this is a bad pledge. I understand the idea behind it. The idea is you don't want people below 400,000 paying more taxes. I don't think that's sustainable, but I, I think there's also better ways to accomplish that goal, which is to make sure that on average, your tax policies are all burdened to people above 400. Um, it just makes it harder to do good tax policy when you have these arbitrary thresholds. And as I said, I think it's not sustainable. I'm hopeful that there are... Um, some ambiguities we can take advantage of, for example, employer side payroll taxes, for example, user fees that are actually being paid in exchange for real things that people are getting. Um, and I'm also hopeful that we loosen it to be sort of more like an average pledge. You know, if we raise your tax here, but cut it there, you're, you're okay. Because this is not a good way to do tax policy and it's not a sustainable way to do fiscal policy. Well, trends, uh, so, sort of uh, transitioning to the spending side from, from that point, one of the biggest items is infrastructure. Uh, and, you know, we're seeing a huge debate right now between the Democrats and the Republicans over what is infrastructure, but also how to pay for it. And that question of user fees comes up because the Republicans say, well, they're not going to roll back any of the corporate tax provisions from the 2017 tax cuts, but they might be willing to look at user fees, which have traditionally funded traditional infrastructure like highways and bridges and mass transit. Uh, so here's where Biden's pledge would potentially get in the way of a, uh, a useful compromise. If you, if you couldn't do something like a gas tax increase or, or a vehicle mileage tax, if you don't like that, um, because it would interfere with that pledge. Yeah, I would, I would hope that's right. And look, we're not going to pay for this package entirely with user fees, and probably we shouldn't. We probably shouldn't be raising, you know, $2 trillion or, or $1 trillion worth of user fees. Um, but there are a lot of pieces of this package that is just common sense. You know, we should pay for our highway spending with a gas tax or a, or a vehicle miles travel tax. We should pay for our broadband spending with something like the universal service fund fees that already exist, you know, to get phone lines out to rural America and already pay for some broadband. Um, we should pay for paid family leave with a payroll tax. I mean, that's a, that's sort of, that's a form of user fee as well. It's like, a, it's like a premium. Um, some of these things are just so obvious. Um, I'm hopeful maybe these don't count against the pledge, um, but maybe there's other ways to think about them. Maybe um, we can look at freight fees that are, that are more imposed on the companies, you know, that, that ship things, the trucks and trains that ship things for, for rail and um, for rail and highway. They don't use all the roads. You know, that's not a perfect user fee, but they do use a large share of, of the roads and of, and of the rail. So maybe we can look at stuff like that. Maybe the payroll tax could be on the employer side. Um, universal service fee, maybe that can be imposed on the, you know, the companies. Um, I think we should try to get a little creative rather than abandon the idea altogether because um, user fees are fair. 
they, right? They, it's, or, or some of the things they're fair because people that use the price to pay for them, they're efficient because they don't discourage work or an assessment and they're good fiscal policy because, um, they, they let you save your tax increases for, for deficit reduction or other stuff, right? It would, it'd be really arbitrary if we, um, you know, did a vehicle mileage tax to pay for, um, you know, an expanded tax credit somewhere or to pay for, um, you know, deficit reduction. Um, and so if we do that for roads, it leaves some of this corporate tax increase money to pay for other stuff. So user fees, I think, really should be in this mix. And I understand the president has taken a pledge. So I think let's figure out what that pledge does and doesn't entail, and we'll work with it. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I'm talking with Mark Goldwine of the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget. And we're discussing President Biden's first budget proposal released last week. Mark, on the spending side, I mean, I guess the real story of this budget is the big increase in spending, much of it designated as either infrastructure or investment. And um, I, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about some of the major initiatives here uh, and whether they're get, get, getting away from the, the paid for, the, the pay for is just, um, you know, whether it's prudent to, to go into enacting some, frankly, major, major new entitlement programs. Yeah, so there's about $5 trillion of spending increases in this, in this budget. Um, most of it is, in the areas of infrastructure broadly defined, um, climate-related policy, or education, childcare, and family policy. Um, not all of it, but most of it falls in those, in those categories. A lot of that stuff is investment. Um, a lot of that stuff also has very real um, near-term benefits, right? So um, paid family leave, yes, there's some kind of future investment, but that really is kind of a, a, a immediate-term benefit. Um, money for universal child care is kind of a mix. Um, you know, money for highways is clearly an investment. Money for um, broadband, again, is a little bit of a mix because, um, you know, of how fast we start using it. Um, I think if we were talking about the budget in isolation, if we otherwise were running balanced budgets or something like that, and we wanted to put investment on top of that and amortize the cost of those investments over their useful life over 30 years and borrow in the near term, I think it'd be a reasonable conversation to have. The problem is our underlying debt is rising so quickly because we're borrowing so much to pay for consumption. And so borrowing to pay for investment on top of borrowing to pay for consumption um, just basically means we're borrowing for everything. And that's not sustainable. And guess what? The bond buyers don't care. They're not like this, this dollar is designated for a bridge while this dollar is dedicated for Medicare. One of the ideas that's come up is uh, politically is could you split off the so-called physical infrastructure or traditional infrastructure, try to get a bipartisan deal, pay for that somehow, uh, and look at the broader definition of infrastructure uh, through the care economy in a, a different process. Um, I, I guess a more partisan process going through reconciliation. I mean, do you think that that may be where this thing ends up? I think it's plausible. I mean, I think there's a couple of reasons why um, the bipartisan approach is going to be better for the members. Um, the one is they'd like to say, especially the president, that they're working on a bipartisan basis. The other is they actually, the highway bill expires on October 1st, and Congress actually has to extend the highway bill. They could do a patch, but they got to do something. 
And that has to be bipartisan unless they go to the filibuster. So there already has to be a highway bill, whether there's more spending or not. And the third is you can't do airmarks in reconciliation. And we know that, you know, politicians love airmarks. They want to be able to go to a bridge and say they built it. So I think there's a lot of um, sort of political forces that push towards there being bipartisanship on some of this um, physical infrastructure stuff. On the flip side, um, you know, I think all the bigger political forces are saying, well, Democrats don't actually need any Republicans. They have enough votes to do this reconciliation. And so they might just do that. I'm not sure how it'll play out. And I'm not sure actually which approach will result in a more fiscally responsible package, uh, because it could be that the bipartisan agreement is, well, we'll just deficit finance the whole thing. You know, Republicans don't like corporate tax increases. Democrats don't like user fees. The compromises we do neither. Um, so it's not clear to me which which angle gets a um, more fiscally responsible package, um, nor nor is it clear to me which which angle we're going to actually do. Um, I mean, overall, you touched on this earlier. I just wanted to get back to it. Overall, are you encouraged by the administration's uh, inclusion of a line? There's a, a memorandum line in the budget table showing over 20 years the budget would would uh, you know really begin to uh, have an effect in in reducing the deficit. Uh, I mean, you could look at that two ways. One is kind of cynically, like, uh, well, twenty years is a long time off, and so you know that's just sort of cover. Uh, and the other is, well, it does show some sensitivity to uh, the deficit uh, as, as an issue and trying to show some yeah. element of fiscal responsibility. Well, here's here's how I see it. Um, they're paying for temporary spending over a much longer period than I want, but they're paying for it in theory with permanent pay force. And that's good for the budget. If we have one time spending, if these really are one time investment and we're using permanent pay force, that's good for the long term budget because it means we're getting deficit reduction when we need it, really when we need it most. You know, when the you know, the cost pressures of the boomers are at their highest around, you know, twenty thirty five to twenty forty five as you know. And so um, I like that there's a bit this, this focus in the long term, and I like to put in their budget. And if you look at their budget, actually, starting around 2030, it switches from being deficit increasing to deficit reducing. That said, that's a long time to wait. And it only happens if all the spending is credibly temporary, and all the revenue actually goes in effect. And this credibly temporary is a really important thing, because a lot of these are five-year spending packages that um, you know, politicians may turn around and say they want to continue into year six and beyond. And so I do worry, um, you know, that we're taking credit for a future that might not happen. I mean, of course it won't happen, but, um, you know, that, that may be unlikely to happen. I worry about that. But on net, um, we got to start focusing on the long term. And um, there, since there certainly doesn't be the political will to reduce the deficit, you know, over the next five years, um, I, I appreciate that the administration has put forward a proposal that is going to start reducing deficits in the long term, at least. Yeah, you know, I keep when I when I see that line, I, I think about when when I was a kid at the beach, you know, um, in Maine, we could see a sandbar and at low tide, it was really it was great. You could you could say I, I can wait out to the sandbar. The problem is that you could drown on the way to the sandbar. <laughs> the mm -hmm. water might get so deep and over your head. That you never got there. So I, I keep thinking about that analogy when I think of deeper and deeper deficits. Um, but but uh, you know, 20 years it'll it'll all work out. 
Well, I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I've been discussing the president's budget with Mark Goldwine of the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget. Uh, Mark can now get back to his vacation, uh, but I'll be right back after these short messages to get more thoughts on the president's budget with Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson. Welcome back to Facing the Future. This is Bob Bixby, and I'm joined now by the Concord Coalition's chief economist, Steve Robinson. Uh, Steve, you've been uh, you've looked at many, many, many presidential budgets over the years, and uh, you've been looking at uh, some of the numbers on this one. Uh, one of the distinctive features of this budget is the creation of a lot of new programs. Uh, most of them look like they would be on the mandatory side of the budget, meaning they're not uh, going through the annual appropriations process. And so you got to look at the long-term implication of these programs and the uh, payout assumptions that the administration is putting into the budget. You've looked at some of the numbers. Could you sort of give me the impression of what maybe are some of the um, uh, risks that you see or, or uh, whether the projections look reasonable uh, to you? Yeah, I think um, it, certainly at first glance, it would appear that the, the Biden administration has vastly overpromised uh, in terms of you know, what they hope to provide in terms of child care and, and elderly care and community college relative to the amount of money that they've put forward on a sustainable basis. Um, you know, there's 400 billion for long-term care. There's more than 400 billion for, for childcare, which sounds like huge sums of money. Um, but when you realize, you know, the retirement of the baby boomers, we're looking at, you know, millions of seniors reaching 65 and, you know, turning 75 and 85 over the next decade or so, you know, the, the demand for services are going to increase significantly. Um, the same thing issues with, with child care. There are so many unknowns that, that to try to figure out exactly what these programs are going to cost before you do them. I mean, it's a huge risk anytime the government creates a new entitlement program, whether it's, you know, the Affordable Care Act we did some years ago, uh, the prescription drug program back in the 90s. I mean, you know, when you create a new program, you just sort of make your best guess. And you know, the Biden administration is committed to paying for this stuff, but if it turns out costing a lot more, a lot more than they think or hope or expect, uh, which I think there's a, a big risk there, um, you know, there's, there's going to be problems. Well, you also have that on the free community college, two years of sure. community college and, and, and healthcare. So there are, there are like three main, uh, not not main programs, but I mean, three phases of life that are being newly uh, subsidized here or expanded sure. subsidies with child and family care, um, daycare, pre-care, as you were discussing. Then there's the um, student uh, part of it, which would be a new program of free community college. And the, the estimates, they are very <clears throat> they actually seem to go down in the budget over 10 years. And I, I think you were saying the healthcare costs, the estimate went down. I, yeah. I, I didn't look at that specific line. Yeah, there's a curious pattern, both with the long-term care and the community college. 
where they appear to put more money up front in the first four or five years, and then the numbers phase down so that they're spending less in the out years. So it's not clear whether they intend to reduce the level of services, limit the number of eligible participants. I mean, it's just not clear what accounts for the pattern where the, the costs are higher up front and lower in the out years. I mean, other than, you know, you could cynically say, well, they want to show that it's kind of <laughs> so, and so they yeah, want to- so there's, there's one logic that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, but that's sort of cynical to front load the costs and then say, oh, over time, it's going to cost less. Well, it, clearly the population is growing. It's not going to cost, and it's significantly less. It's not just a few you know, billion, it's tens of billions less than in the early years. So yeah, it's not clear that the whole timing and pattern of, of the cash flows from a programmatic level don't make a lot of sense. Do you think that the uh, economic assumptions on things like inflation and interest rates in the budget um, are reasonable? <laughs> or, I guess that, you can say reasonable or likely. <laughs> well, um, they're, they're possible. Maybe that, <laughs> yes. that, that would be a good way to describe it. I mean, it's, it's not inconceivable that we're gonna to continue to have extremely low real interest rates and that inflation will remain in check over the long run. But they're, you know, they're putting all their eggs in one basket. I mean, they're essentially saying, look, we're gonna spend, you know, an extra four, well, actually it's closer to $5 trillion in new, new spending between entitlements and, and discretionary. Um, and we're gonna partially pay for it over the next decade. But don't worry, because even though the debt is rising as a share of GDP, interest costs are going to basically remain stable. And we're going to assume that's true because interest rates and inflation is going to remain low. Now, it might work out and they may be lucky and that may all come to pass. But if you know real interest rates don't remain a third of their historical you know, long-term average, we're talking going back you know, decades of, of, of interest rates being, real interest rates being much higher, uh, and inflation remaining anchored despite you know, all of the quantitative easing and all of the machinations that the Federal Reserve has been doing over the last, you know, since basically the financial crisis in 2008, 2009. Um, you know, there are a lot of observers who are concerned that inflation won't remain anchored and that if they take off, interest rates almost by definition will have to rise. And in that case, you know, you also have higher inflation, which means higher COLAs for Social Security and higher wage updates for Medicare provider payments. And so, I mean, you know, there's a lot of the budget that's linked to inflation too. Now, obviously, revenues also, the, the tax code is linked to inflation. So there's some offsetting forces there uh, on the tax and spending side with inflation, but, but the biggest risk is on interest rates. Um, and if interest rates rise, either because of a, of a risk premium, uh, because investors are concerned about inflation, um, you know, I, I'm afraid that their optimistic assumption about debt and the sustainability of their budget proposal, you know, isn't just, it's not gonna come to pass. Well, Steve, I think that's all we're going to have time for today, but certainly we'll be coming back to these topics uh, in the coming weeks and probably for the coming months. That's it for today on Facing the Future. 
Thanks for tuning in. My guests have been Mark Goldwine of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget and Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson. This is your host, Bob Bixby. Tune in again next week for another edition of Facing the Future. 